After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born, the King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. It's really interesting how Matthew decides to tell the story of Christmas and Jesus' birth. In Matthew, the birth of Jesus is half a verse at the end of chapter 1. But he knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he named her, him Jesus. There's no story about angels appearing to the shepherds, or about how there's no room at the inn, or how they have to leave Nazareth to go to Bethlehem, or the angel coming to Mary, or Mary singing a song like there is in Luke. And what that does is it takes the action and it moves it away from Jesus' birth and focuses on how people reacted to his birth. Luke has a long narrative of how Jesus came to be born, but Matthew wants to focus on what happened after he was born. The Messiah came into the world, but how does the world receive him? And when Matthew describes it like that, it makes you ask the question, how would I have reacted to Jesus' birth? What is my response to Jesus now? What do I have to do now that the Messiah is here? We like to put ourselves in the shoes of Mary and Joseph, but really our position is much closer to the characters in this story. Just like us, they hear about the coming of the Messiah secondhand and have to wonder, what do we do with this information now? The Messiah coming is good news, right? But in this chapter, clearly not everyone thought so. They have to grapple with the question of who they really think is in charge. Is it Herod, or is it this little baby, Jesus? Now, the word Messiah is a Hebrew word that basically means rightful king. When the Messiah comes, the promise to David that a king will sit on his throne forever will be fulfilled. And when that happens, that means not only that Israel wouldn't have foreign invaders occupying them, it would mean that God has returned back to his people. It would mean that the relationship between God and his people is still on. And because of that, God is going to save the whole world. The exile is over, and not only will the sins of Israel be paid for, but also the sins of the whole world. If the Messiah is here, the whole world is going to be set right, and Israel is going to be right at the center of it. This is the one hope that Israel has, 
because they're not overthrowing Rome anytime soon. The Messiah is the one that's going to rule over Israel, and through Israel, he would bless everyone. Then, not only would Jews worship God the way they were supposed to, but people in the whole world, from whatever country or ethnicity, would worship him, and they would all be prosperous. Now, this is hugely exciting news. It's what the Jews have been waiting for for centuries. So when you remember all of that, you would expect the Jews to be really excited about the Messiah coming. The text says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judea, in the days of Herod the king, look, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. The hopes of the Jewish people have come to fruition. The rightful king of Israel has returned after 500 years in exile. The promise to David is fulfilled. God's presence is back. Israel and the whole world is being remade back to its proper intention. The Jewish Messiah is returning to the Jewish people in accordance with Jewish scriptures. And they hear about it through a couple of Gentiles, who are probably magicians, passing through Judah. Do you see how weird that is? The Jewish Messiah was announced to the Jewish people by a bunch of Gentile magicians who probably found out about it by performing astrology. And by the way, astrology and magic were two of the biggest things that Jews were not supposed to do. It's like if you as a kid found out that you got a really great present from your parents like a week before Christmas because I broke into your house and started playing with it. Nothing about the birth announcement of the Messiah is anywhere close to what would have been expected. And notice the way that the wise men say it. They say, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? And as you might be able to tell, this is a bit of a sore subject. Herod the Great was granted this exact title, the king of the Jews, by the Roman Senate in 37 BC. But the problem is pretty obvious. The Romans were the ones who called him the king of the Jews, not the Jews. Herod wasn't even a Jew either. He tried to get street cred by marrying a Jewish woman, but then he executed her when he thought she thought he thought she was a threat. He was from the Edomites, which was a people that were some of the worst historical enemies of the Jews. Herod had to be super brutal to everyone to ensure that no one questioned whether he was actually the king of the Jews. His authority to become the king of the Jews came entirely from Rome, not from God, and not from the Jewish people, and everyone knew it. Everyone had to go through this whole charade of calling Herod the king of the Jews when everyone knew he had no real right to be king. But you just don't challenge Rome. They're too powerful, and if you step out of line, you'll be destroyed. In fact, this was true for hundreds of years, even before Israel was officially part of the Roman Empire. All of the kings of Israel during this time claimed to be the king of the Jews. But actually, the entire reason they were allowed to rule was because the Romans let them. From the very first words that come out of the wise men's mouth, they have stepped on a landmine. They basically said what everyone was thinking, but had to pretend not to believe. Herod isn't really the king of the Jews. The time's up for him. God is installing the real king of the Jews. So now both the Jews and this gen the Gentiles in this story have a decision to make. Will they follow the rightful king of the Jews, the Messiah who was prophesied to be the, be the king of the world, and who would bring Israel back from exile and God back to his temple? Or would they follow Rome with Herod, the big baddie that has kept them in line by force and taxes them brutally? 
What is so ironic here is this huge contrast between the reactions of the Gentile wise men and the Jewish leaders in this story. These wise men have come from super far away, and they're totally ready to worship the new king who has been born, risking life and limb to be obedient to God, even through adversity. Meanwhile, the Jews, who are supposed to be the beneficiaries of this new coming king, hear about him and immediately search the scriptures to find out how to kill him. This is important. Think about that. The king has come to save all of Israel and set the world right. And from the very beginning of his life, the people who prayed most for him set out to kill him. Let's read verses 3 to 5 again. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. In other words, not just Herod, but all the Jews, even the real ones. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born, in Bethlehem in Judea. Keep this in mind. They didn't ask, is this really the Messiah? They believed the wise men that the Messiah had come. They even believed the scriptures that he would be born in Bethlehem. Every one of the hopes of Israel is being fulfilled in this baby that has just been born. They believe it. They really do. They wouldn't have looked in the scriptures for it otherwise. But their very first thought isn't, how do we get on board with this? Their first thought is, we have to kill him. The Messiah is here. We know he is the Messiah, and he has to die right now. And gee, isn't that foreshadowing for the end of the gospel, where they put the Messiah on a Roman cross? Now, you might be tempted to, to say, those silly people, we're good Christians, and we aren't at all tempted to do the same thing. But in a lot of ways, I think they understood the coming of the Messiah more than we do. They knew you can't serve Rome and the Messiah at the same time. If the rightful king of the world has come, there's no way you can continue to make deals with puny little Rome. There's no time for any quote-unquote king of the Jews, like Herod was, who are really puppets for Rome, if the actual king of the whole world has come. There's only one authority you can serve. The king of kings is here, so every earthly king must submit to him. The coming of the Messiah necessarily means war with Rome. And you've spent your whole life submitting to Rome because Rome has the strongest army in the world has ever seen. And they're brutal and even genocidal in war. So you have two options. Accept the Messiah and war with Rome or kill the Messiah and maintain peace. And these people decided to kill the Messiah. Now, aren't we in similar situations every day, though? We have to make the choice between scary but practical institutions like Rome and God. We have to satisfy our neighbors, our boss, our teachers, our friends, our government, our bank account, and all of those things. And sometimes we have to choose between those things and God. Think about what it would mean to say that the true king of this world, the one who deserves our ultimate loyalty, is Jesus, and not Joe Biden or Donald Trump. The one who deserves your ultimate loyalty is a baby in a manger and not the one with tanks and nukes and bureaucracies worth trillions of dollars on its side. Christians believe that the real king of this world is one that began his reign on the cross, not on a fancy stage. He didn't give a well-rehearsed inaugural address, but said in humble submission, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. If you really think about it, you can see why the Jews in this story decided to kill Jesus. They weren't silly Bible characters. They were normal people like you and me. 
it'd be difficult to say that we would have done anything differently. We all know the good Sunday school answer to what they should have done better is trust God more. God can defeat Rome. And yes, that's true. But are we prepared to really consider what it meant for them to trust God in this context? It would mean conflict with Rome, the strongest empire the world has ever seen. And who do you have on your side? From a worldly perspective, a tiny helpless baby and a man who calls himself king of the Jews but shows that by being crucified. Now, are we prepared to consider what that means in our context? What would it mean to live your life as one who gives loyalty to that kind of king above all else? The answer to that question is like trying to answer what would it look like to live on earth, to live on earth from someone from, to, sorry. It'd be like trying to answer what would it look like to live on earth to someone from Mars. Really truly believing that the true king of the world is the one that died on the cross is like stepping into an entirely different world. But let's start with a few points. Now, the answer that Jesus would not give is violent insurrection. He had every opportunity to do that if he wanted to. He had armies of angels to call down on his enemies if necessary. But he didn't do that. And the reason is that his kingdom was going to be completely different from the kingdoms of this world. His kingdom would not come through some climactic battle like Actium or Waterloo or Yorktown. Instead, it would be like a mustard seed. It would begin with small acts of love and obedience to God for the sake of those who love him. And it would slowly, even painfully slowly, grow from there into a mighty tree, which spans across this whole globe with literally billions of members, and it has. This is a different kind of kingdom, because it's one that preaches peace, practices peace, and it spreads peacefully. It would make no sense for Jesus to, to preach a kingdom of true peace and love, but to call us to take up our sword to quickly vanquish the world for his sake. So when you're tempted to think otherwise, remember that you serve a king that is a tiny helpless baby. So of course you're a citizen of a completely different kind of kingdom. And this kingdom changes things for the better, but it does it slowly through love and faithfulness, not quickly through backbiting and political maneuvering. This kingdom loves small things, even small churches. It doesn't think that huge battles are where the work, work is done but in potlucks and in game nights and in Bible studies. Now, following this kind of king also means that we're part of a completely different system of honors and privileges. We look at the tiny baby in the manger and the king on the cross and we say, yes, that is what it looks like to be truly honor, honorable and praiseworthy, giving up yourself in love for those around you, even if it means shame in the eyes of the world. The cross was the most shameful place a person could go in Roman society. It was a place which loved honor and hated shame. Boasting and seeking honors was the name of the game. But Christians flipped that completely upside down because they knew they served a completely different kind of king. High-class Christians followed their model of their king, and they loved and associated with slaves and peasants. They all sat at the same table for dinner. And that meant that high-class Christians faced a lot of shame in society, but they felt honored by it because they faced the same kind of mocking that Jesus did. Christians today are called to do the same things, loving and serving those around them, even if it would cause them to lose on popularity and status. The coming of Jesus can be very inconvenient. 
He asks you to do things that really aren't easy. He might ask you to take a stand against violence and materialism and compromised sexuality. And by doing so, you might find yourself on the wrong side of some scary enemies like Rome. The king of the Jews, even as a newborn, by his very nature asks you to defy those enemies to serve him. Because the very fact that there is this other king means that there's some authority greater than the scary enemies you might make. No matter how powerful Rome or your friends or the government or your boss or anyone who opposes God might be, their authority is nothing compared to the authority of the Messiah, the toddler. You may think that you're being pragmatic by satisfying these human authorities. But if you do, you end up on the wrong side of God himself. But if you choose the Messiah over those enemies, you'll make the greatest possible friend, loyal to the greatest degree, loving you so much that he died for you, blessing you for a thousand generations, and promising resurrection and vindication on the last day. But the New Testament ultimately gives us a choice. We can choose King Jesus and become a part of his nation, which carries the presence of God like God had promised to Abraham in the beginning. Or we can choose Rome as our king and become a part of the chaos. If we want to choose the right option, we can follow the lead of these Gentile magicians who had everything to lose by following the Messiah. At Epiphany, we celebrate that these were the first Gentiles of many, including most of us, who truly gave their allegiance and loyalty to the true king of the world. They recognized that the coming of the Messiah means there's more, no more struggle for power or for wealth. There's no more questions about which side we take in some alliance. There's no more Judea or Rome. Herod is old news. There's only one authority that's worth following. The Messiah is the scariest enemy and the most loyal friend. Choosing the Messiah, while brave, is the only rational decision. And they were the first of literally billions of Gentiles that made the same decision. History proves them right. That starry Roman Empire lasted another few short centuries, and nothing is left of them but ruins. The Messiah's kingdom is here right in this church today. And choose today which one you'll serve. Let's pray. King Jesus, give us the courage we need to follow you and defy the authorities which hate us. We praise you because you are a far better master than any of the powers that want our allegiance. Give us strength so that our actions can reflect the kingdom that you have created in this world. Amen.